0: Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Mark, the first chapter, verses 14 through 20, and can be found in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible on page 35. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. The word of God for the people of God.
1: Thank you, Beth. I wanna ask uh, for some additional prayers for uh, Jeannie Lum and her sister Sue Goddess, their father, Hilding Burquist, who's been in our prayer list for a while, uh, passed away on Friday night. Uh, We'll be sending out the details of memorials through the uh, prayer chain and make that available to everyone, but please keep them in prayer. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It was the summer of 1959 at a resort in North Carolina. Just out of college, a young man gets a job that combines being the night clerk at the resort and helping with the horses in the stable. The owner-manager is Swiss-Italian with European notions of... Uh, conditions of employment, the young man and the boss don't get along. One's 22 and pretty free with his opinions. The other is 52 and has a few opinions of his own. One week, the employees were served the same thing for lunch every day. Two wieners, a mound of sauerkraut, and stale rolls. To compound insult to injury, the cost of the meal was deducted from their pay. The young man was outraged. On Friday night of that week, the young man was at his desk job around 11 p.m., and the night auditor came in on duty, and the young man went to the kitchen to get a snack and saw a note on the sh- a note to the chef that the employees were again to receive wieners and sauerkraut on Saturday. That does it. I quit. For lack of a better audience, the young man unloaded on the night auditor, Sigmund Wolman. He declared that he'd had it up to here, that he was going to throw the wieners and the sauerkraut right in the face of the owner. In his own words, he said, I am sick and tired of this misery and nobody is going to make me eat wieners and sauerkraut for a whole week and nobody is going to make me pay for it and who does he think he is anyhow? And the horses are nags and the guests are fools and I'm packing my bags and heading to Montana where they won't feed me wieners and sauerkrauts and they certainly wouldn't feed them to the hogs. He went on for some 20 minutes. He ended with a call to arms, freedom, unions, uprising, and the breaking of the chains of the working masses. As he pitched his fit, Sigmund Wolman sat quietly on his st- stool, smoking a cigarette and watching him with sorrowful eyes. Survivor of Auschwitz, three years, thin, coughed a lot. He liked being alone on his night job. It was peaceful and quiet. It gave him time to read sometimes. And even more, he could go into the kitchen and have a snack any time he wanted, all the wieners and sauerkraut he could ever hope for. To him, a feast. More than that, at times, there was nobody around to tell him what to do. At Auschwitz, he dreamed of such a time. Are you finished, he said to the young man. "No," why, the young man replied. Listen. Listen to me. You know what's wrong with you? It's not the wieners and the sauerkraut, and it's not the boss, and it's not the chef, and it's not the job. So what's wrong with me? You think you know everything, but you don't know the difference between inconvenience and a problem. If you break your neck, if you have nothing to eat, if your house is on fire, then you have a problem. Everything else is an inconvenience. Life is inconvenience. Life is lumpy learn to separate the inconveniences from the real problems and you'll live longer and it will annoy it won't annoy people like me so much good night and he waved him off with a sign that could be either a dismissal or a blessing and waved him off to go to bed now this is robert fulgham's story you know robert fulgham he's the author of everything i need to know i learned in kindergarten After telling this story, Fulgham wrote, Seldom in my life have I been hit between the eyes with a truth so hard. There, in the late-night darkness of the Feather River Inn, Sigmund Woolman simultaneously gave me a swift kick and opened a window in my mind. For 30 years now, in times of stress and strain, when somebody has me back to a wall, I think of woolman problem or inconvenience. Fulgham was jolted into re-examining his behavior, attitudes, and presuppositions. A swift kick in the pants helped him to see things in a new way. He changed. He grew in understanding. He began to live life differently, and he has lived life differently from then on. From the beginning of the gospel gospel accounts of Jesus' life, we hear a similar story. Jesus comes before the first disciples and invites them to re-examine their behavior, attitudes, presuppositions. He invites them to see things in a new way. He invites them to live their lives differently. He builds upon the message that John the Baptist proclaimed. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe in the good news giving him a swift kick, so to speak. Repent. We talk about that word a lot in church, especially around Lent. We talk about it, and I think many of us kind of feel guilty when we hear that word. That's sort of what we're taught to do. But the thing is that it's in Greek, and I didn't take Greek, so I'm going to not butcher the word, but in Greek it means to change one's mind or direction, literally, to turn around. To turn around. Okay, this is the congregation participation portion of the sermon. I need two volunteers. Who would like to volunteer? (laughs) Tyler's going to volunteer. He's seen this before. (laughs) You want to volunteer, Tyler? All right, come on up. Will? All right, right, great. We got kids to volunteer. Heather didn't have to. First service, she had to do it. Okay. So you guys are going to help me illustrate a point. And Tyler, will you describe over there with your back turned? Go down here. Walk all the way down here. I know you do. (laughs) All right, go a little further, a little further. And Will, come on over here. All right, and look towards Tyler down there. Tyler, would you please describe to Will your favorite dessert? Okay. Did you hear him? Very well? Eh, not really well. No, but you didn't hear him very well either. Okay. Uh, Tyler, would you turn around, please? And now would you tell Will again what you said? Uh, My favorite dessert is ice cream because you can get it in so many different places where it just tastes. Was that better? Okay. And also you could see, like, his face too, right? And how He really likes ice cream. You could tell that on his face as well. You see the difference it makes when you turn around, when you change that behavior and just turn around? You're able to have open communication, right? Think about how just changing and turning your behavior, turning yourself around, could open up the communication between you and God, your ability to both speak and to listen. That's what repentance is all about. It's turning around. Thank you, guys, for your help. One biblical commentator, Richard Donovan, notes that we tend to think of repentance as feeling guilty, but it's really about a change of direction. Once we begin to see things from God's perspective, we may well indeed feel guilty about getting it wrong for so long, but repentance starts with the new vision rather than the guilt feelings. Calvin says that there are two dimensions of repentance, changing our lives for the better, the idea of turning away from our sins and conversion and discovering the newness of life that's available in Christ. And this particular passage seems more focused on the second aspect of repentance. Jesus calls the men fishing to repent, to turn their lives around, to follow. And those fishermen who here do just that Simon and Andrew are casting their nets into the sea and drop what they're doing and turn to follow Jesus. James and John are mending their nets and just leave their boats and their dad and go and follow Christ. Four fishermen hear Jesus' invitation, drop what they're doing, turn away from the sea, turn their lives around, and follow Jesus. They leave their nets, They leave their lives, they start a new life, one of following Jesus, one of fishing for people. In an instant, their lives were immediately reoriented. And the days and weeks and months that follow their behavior, their attitudes, their assumptions, their understandings, their livelihood and family plans, everything about them undergoes a radical change as they walk with and work with Christ. Life as they knew it. Totally changed. And they start to see things totally differently in a new light, in God's light. The decision they made that day to drop their nets and follow Jesus was life altering. It meant giving up their steady source of income, it meant leaving their family behind, it meant being subject to rumor and ridicule, it meant seeing something awful in the crucifixion, seeing someone they knew and loved die but it also meant seeing some really great things, seeing some miracles and healings, and of course, the miracle of the resurrection. Simon and Andrew and James and John probably had no idea what all they were getting themselves into on that first day when the call came, but they heard the call, they felt the swift, swift kick, and they responded, they dropped their nets And they found their lives changed and transformed by the one who inspires all of us to change, by the one who offers transformation to us all. But here's the thing that's always amazed me about this Bible story. They just dropped their nets. They so quickly made a decision to take a risk, to just do it. They just did it. Did they know they'd be transformed? Did they know what they were getting themselves into? They just trusted the new life they were opening themselves up to would work out. Where was their security? How did they know? How did they have that kind of trust? In our world today, the whole thing seems implausible to even consider listening to someone who's telling you to change your whole way of being, to turn your life around, a whole, to a whole new orientation goes against our grain Have you ever seen Dr. Phil? It's hard for people to get on board with what he's telling them on how to change their lives. It's hard. But to actually agree to do it and abandon all that you know and all that you are to follow someone you've only just met in what seems like a split second decision and it's out of the question. You ever wonder what their wives thought? What they said? I can't even imagine. But they did it. Those four early disciples should be alive today because they'd be perfect for like, shows like Survivor, right? Or when Fear Factor was on, shows like that. Extreme sports, nothing scares them. They've left it all behind to follow Christ. No safety ropes or harnesses, no pension plan or health insurance, just a promise to learn a new way of living. They had the courage and the tenacity to leave everyone and everything behind and go forward in a whole new direction of uncertainty. And yet they were certain, sure of what they were doing, confident in their calling. They left behind their nets and their boats and all that provided them with safety for a new adventure where their safety net was Jesus Christ. And Christ calls us to do the same today. We're called to have courage and tenacity and assurance. We're called to take the risk of being Christian, leaving behind old ways of doing things, opening ourselves to new directions, even if it may be hard to see where it will lead. Tony Campolo tells a story about a Coast Guard unit stationed at Cape May, New Jersey. One night, a hurricane blew in from the Atlantic Ocean, and a ship was breaking up just off the coast. The commander of the unit woke the men under his command and told them to prepare to go to sea. One of the young recruits shot back incredulously, but captain, if we go out there, we may never come back. The captain answered, son, you don't have to come back. You have to go out. Being a Christian requires betting your life on the truth and committing yourself with all the risks involved It requires the abandonment of securities that this world has to offer and that you launch out into unknown waters where the threats are great. But that's what we sign up for. That's what we say we're going to do when we heed that swift kick. When we answer the call, it's a risk leaving old ways behind, putting all your trust in someone other than yourself to provide you with direction. Sure, it's hard and it's scary, but when we do it, we're blessed. We find peace. We find hope, companionship, assurance, love. When we drop our old ways and follow Jesus, we're given all kinds of opportunity as we enjoy a new life led by our Savior who calls us to love him and to love others. I think it's worth the risk. How about you? Amen.